Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There was nothing particularly special about April 8th, 1994. I came to work as usual, saw the usual people, and prepared for my radio show in the usual way. I made note that the Toronto Blue Jays were playing a sold-out game that day. One of the stories in the news was that American troops were upset about a smoking ban that had come into effect on some military bases, but that was about it. It was just a regular Friday. But at about 1.45, 15 minutes before airtime, Anita, who was working in the newsroom, popped her head into the studio. Just a heads up, she said, something's going on in Seattle. It looks like it has something to do with Kurt Cobain. Now, if I'm honest, most of us were prepared for some, well, bad news. We knew that Kurt had his issues, his health problems, his heroin addiction, his crazy marriage to Courtney Love, the canceled European tour, and, of course, an apparent suicide attempt in a Rome hotel room about a month earlier. Still, all that was pretty abstract. It was, it was gossip, stories in magazines. But over the next 90 minutes... Everything resolved into harsh, terrible, awful reality. If you were around then, you probably remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news. It was one of those rare, rare moments. The same sort of thing felt with the assassination of John Lennon on Monday, December 8th, 1980, and the death of Elvis Presley on Tuesday, August 16th, 1977. Was that really 25 years ago? Yeah, it was. If you were there, let's revisit things. If you weren't, here's how dramatic and sad it was. It's why we're still talking about it. This is Kurt Cobain, 25 years after he died. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. This is exactly how things unfolded on the afternoon of Friday, April 8th, 1994. Listen. Kurt Cobain is in the news again. A body has been found in his Seattle home. No indication yet of who it is. Don't know if it's the body is that of a man or a woman. Police are on the scene and an investigation is underway. Last month, the lead singer of Nirvana was hospitalized in Rome for a drug overdose. So 13 minutes after 2 o'clock, uh, I'm Alan Cross. I just want to update you on something that was reported on the news about uh, 13 minutes ago. Uh, police in Seattle say the body of a man in his 20s has been found with a shotgun wound in the head at the home of Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. A police spokesman says the body has been there for about a day. Police say that they'll leave it up to the medical examiner to identify the body. Police say the body was found this morning by an electrician who had been doing some work at the home. He saw the body through a window and police had to break into the cottage above a detached garage where they discovered the man and a suicide note. That's all the details that are available right now, but we'll uh, do our best to find out what's going on. Greenhouse above the garage, and I was I walked around to the door on the upper side to uh, to see about uh, getting access to run or in the garage. And I looked in through the glass door, and there's this guy laying there with a shotgun laying on his chest and uh, blood running out of his ear. Well, still no official ID on the body found in Kurt Cobain's Seattle home, but various sources are reporting the body is that of Kurt Cobain. 338. Uh, I really don't want to do this. Um, This is the latest from Seattle. A record company official says Nirvana lead singer Kurt Cobain shot himself to death at his Seattle home yesterday. 
Police say Cobain's body was found today with a shotgun wound to the head, a suicide note nearby. He had been recuperating from last month's overdose of painkillers and champagne. His mother says Cobain has been missing for six days. And she says the last time she spoke with her son, she told him not to join the stupid club of other rock stars who had died early. Kurt Cobain was 28. his neck and there was a uh, suicide note stuck in a potted plant that had been dumped out. Good afternoon, this is Officer Vanette Tushy with the Seattle Police Media Update Information Line for April 8th, Friday, and the time is 4 p.m. If you are calling on any update information from the death investigation earlier this morning at 171 Lake Washington Boulevard East, the medical examiner has now made a statement regarding this incident. You may call their recording line at 223-5888. Thank you. Uh, the King County Medical Examiner's Office has positively identified the body of Kurt Cobain by fingerprints. The autopsy has shown that Kurt Cobain died of a shotgun wound to the head, and at this time the wound appears to be self-inflicted. Seattle Police Department, Homicide, and King County Medical Examiners are, are continuing their investigation. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or to me. The worst crime I can think of would be to pull people off by faking it, pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. I guess thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the last years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody person, and I don't have the passion anymore. So remember, and don't remember this, because this is a f lie. It's better to burn out than to fade away. <laughs> Peace, love, empathy, Kurt That was the first draft of history, written on April 8th, 1994, and in the days following the news of Kurt Cobain's death. 25 years on, it's maybe time to look back at what happened and what's happened since, and how all this has any relevance to our music today. But, but wait, wait, wait. Hang on. We need some perspective first. If you were alive and musically aware in 1994... Kurt's death might seem like yesterday. This would be especially true if you were in your peak music years, that, that time from entering high school to your mid-20s, when so much of our lives and so much of our identities revolve around music. Let's say you were 20 when Kurt died. That would have made you around six or seven when John Lennon died. Now, you might remember something about what happened that day, but chances are little of it had any real emotional effect. And when Elvis died in 1977, you probably remember nothing because you were barely old enough to talk. So another way to look at it, in 1994, 25 years ago was 1969, which was a whole different world, a whole different generation. So let's apply that math to right now. If you are 20 years old today, you weren't even born when Kurt died. So you never experienced all the emotions of those days following his death. Kurt grunge, and everything that happened in the early 1990s is as remote and unfamiliar to you as Woodstock was to a young grunge fan in 1994. 
But myths and legends and legacies need to be placed in context, too. You might not have been there, but these stories can be so powerful, it feels like you might as well have been. So let's go back to 1994. Let's try to figure out why the story of Kurt still resonates today. When we return, a recap of Kurt's last months and the days leading up to his death in April 1994. I actually, I still miss him. I still miss him as much as I did the day he passed away. I will never forget the first time I heard Nirvana. And I'll never forget the first time I identified to Nirvana, but mostly um, the first time I identified to Kurt Cobain. Every time I hear a Nirvana song, it reminds me of the beginning of a new age. This is a look back at the death of Kurt Cobain 25 years ago. What were his last months like? Well, there were a lot of doctor visits to determine the cause of his unending stomach issues. Nine different specialists on both coasts. No one could give him a definite diagnosis. Not Crohn's disease, not IBS. Maybe a pinched nerve. That could explain why opioids work to kill the pain. You know, Percodan, morphine, and heroin. If you go back through the scrawls in Kurt's now famous personal journals, you'll find many entries about his stomach. One reads, Just let me have my very own unexplainable rare stomach disease named after me. And the title of our double album is Cobain's Disease, a rock opera about vomiting gastric juice, being a borderline anorexic Auschwitz grunge boy with an accompanying endoscope video. Physical therapy and a prescription drug called Buprenex seemed to help. For a little while, anyway. But back to heroin. That was a real problem. On May 9th, 1993, he was rescued from an overdose when paramedics gave him a shot of Narcan just in time. And that wasn't just an isolated episode. In the last 10 months of his life, Kurt OD'd almost a dozen times. His friends began calling him Rapunzel because he rarely came down from his room. There was a gun call to the home on Lake Washington Boulevard in June 1993. Cops had to be called to defuse that situation. Then came the follow-up to Nevermind. And we need to acknowledge that some revisionist history has taken place. When In Utero came out in the fall of 1993, it really kind of fizzled. The big follow-up to Nevermind sold less than 200,000 copies in its first week. Part of the problem was that Walmart stores refused to stock it because of the artwork and some lyrical content, but, you know, still. The truth was fans had become bored of Kurt's issues and his anti-star stance. I think part of the reason Nirvana did the MTV Unplugged performance in November of 1993 was to try to get people excited about the band again. Well, it did, but really only after Kurt died. There were fights with Nirvana's management over who was doing what with the band's finances. There was an invitation to headline Lollapalooza, which Kurt didn't really want to do, even though it would have meant a payday of $9 million. He became obsessed with writing his will. In February and March of 1994, there was a tour of Europe, which did not go well. His health was bad. And he was worried about the fact that Nirvana hadn't taken out any tour cancellation insurance. More than once, he wondered, what would happen to everybody and everything if I died? 
Nirvana's last ever show was held in an airport hangar in Munich, Germany on March 1st, 1994, in front of just over 3,000 people. It was an okay gig. There was a power failure at one point, so there was a quick acoustic set. And that night, Kurt was sick. His throat was, was very, very sore, and he didn't want to play at all that night, but he did seem to be having fun. One of the songs that evening was a cover of the Cars' My Best Friend's Girl. After the show in Munich, the rest of the tour was canceled. Kurt was just too sick to continue with what doctors called chronic bronchitis and laryngitis. And besides, the band was due for a vacation anyway. Chris Novoselic went back to Seattle. Dave Grohl stayed in Germany to work on a soundtrack project. And Kurt flew to Rome, where he hooked up with Courtney and checked into room 541 of the very expensive Excelsior Hotel. Sometime after midnight on March 4th, Kurt wrote a three-page suicide note washed down more than 50 pills of a tranquilizer called Rohypno with a bottle of champagne and slipped into a coma. Courtney found him in the morning and called an ambulance. Kurt was in a coma for 20 hours. CNN had even reported that he had died. Kurt was well enough to fly home to the house on Lake Washington Boulevard in Seattle on March the 12th. People were obviously relieved, not only just because he had survived a near-death experience, but because maybe this would scare him straight. But, despite all the wishful thinking, it didn't work out like that. On March 18th, there was another domestic dispute of some kind. That Friday night, Kurt locked himself in a room and was threatened to kill himself, so Courtney called the cops again. The situation was diffused, but not before the cops confiscated four guns and 25 boxes of assorted bullets. Kurt was obviously in trouble. On March 25th, Courtney gathered a bunch of doctors and friends together at the house in Seattle to try to scare Kurt straight. He had to deal with his problems. This was the infamous last-ditch intervention. The group of people included Courtney, Chris, Dave, touring Nirvana guitarist Pat Smear, members of Nirvana's management and legal team, and a drug counselor named James Burr. The meeting lasted for five hours. In the end, Kurt relented and flew to Los Angeles on the 30th to check into a rehab unit known for straightening out strung-out celebrities. Meanwhile, Courtney went off to do more promotional work for her upcoming album, Live Through This. But before Kurt went to L.A., he and his buddy Dylan paid a visit to Stan Baker Sports, a Seattle gun shop, on March the 30th. Kurt wanted to buy a new gun. After all, the cops had taken all those old ones. But he couldn't make the purchase because, well, then the police would know. So he gave Dylan the $308.37 to buy a Remington C-11 shotgun and a box of shells. Kurt claimed he needed it for protection. Kurt checked into the Exodus Recovery Center in L.A. that night. He spent two nights there. But on the evening of Good Friday, April the 1st, he scaled the wall in the garden, took a cab to the airport, where he caught Delta Flight 788 to Seattle. He ended up in seat 2F, next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. When they landed, Duff asked if he needed a ride home, but Kurt declined. He was recognized by a Canadian Nirvana fan at SeaTac Airport, who asked Kurt to sign his copy of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. This would be around 1 a.m. on Saturday, April 2, 1994. The weird thing about this autograph 
is that Kurt dated it as April 5th, which is the day he ended up killing himself. Courtney didn't know where he was. She was frantic. Fearing that Kurt was out to hurt himself, she hired an L.A. detective named Tom Grant to track him down. His mother filed a missing persons report with the Seattle police. Where was Kurt? Well, he was home in Seattle. He made it back to the house shortly before 2 a.m. on Saturday, April the 2nd. One of the last persons to see him alive was Callie, the Cobain's former nanny, who was looking after the house while everybody was supposed to be in Los Angeles. Kurt, Callie, and Callie's girlfriend had a quick talk at about 6 that morning. Then he tried to call Courtney at her hotel in Los Angeles, but she had a do-not-disturb order on her phone, and he couldn't get through. Over the next two days, there were all kinds of Elvis-like sightings of Kurt around Seattle, at a park, at another house he owned in nearby Carnation, with an unidentified friend, at a dealer's house, at a couple of hotels, and apparently at a store called Seattle Guns, where he bought another box of 20-gauge shotgun shells. As for the rest of it, we can only speculate. Sometime on April the 5th, 1994, he went to the room above the greenhouse in the backyard of his house. He wrote out a suicide note, loaded up a shotgun, loaded himself up with heroin, and shot himself. He was found by that electrician three days later, Friday, April 8th, 1994. There's nothing like checking out of this existence in a dramatic way to change your image. And from that point on, Kurt was up there with Elvis and Buddy Holly and John Lennon and Tupac. So, where is Kurt now? Physically, I mean. Well, after being turned down by churches across Seattle for the funeral, it was a suicide after all, a Unitarian church took the gig. Kurt's body was cremated, some of the ashes were sprinkled on the banks of the Wishka River in Kurt's hometown of Aberdeen, Washington. Courtney apparently had some made into objects for her Buddhist shrine. Some were apparently stuffed into a teddy bear backpack that she carried with her everywhere until 2008, when it was stolen out of her home in Los Angeles. I don't think it was ever recovered. And this is weird. In October 2008, a performance artist from Australia named Natasha Stelmach announced that she had come into possession of some of Kurt's ashes and was going to smoke them in a big joint. This act, she said, would set Kurt free from all the commercialism and exploitation that had surrounded him since his death. The three people closest to Kurt at the time of his death was his bandmate and longtime buddy and fellow Aberdeen, Washington resident, Chris Novoselic, plus Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl, a guy who joined the party fairly late in the game. And then there was his wife and widow, Courtney Love. When we come back, we'll look at what's happened to them since the events of April 1994. When Kurt Cobain died, I was driving on the highway and I pulled over and basically just sat there. I didn't want to drive anymore and I sat there and I listened and for the first time uh, the death of a you know quote-unquote superstar really affected me. I cried, I my stomach dropped, just kind of sat there for about a half an hour on the side of the road and Nirvana was a big part of my life, a big part of being a teenager and getting through when times were tough. I'd listened to a Nirvana album and in my room, walked away in my room and I could just really relate to the music and what they were saying. It was the first 
They were the first band that I could really, really relate to and got some serious help from through their lyrics and, and knowing that I wasn't alone. When he died, Kurt Cobain was 27. Courtney was 29. Chris was about to turn 28, and Dave was 25. All pretty young in the grand scheme of things. What's become of them? Let's, let's trace what's happened since. Back in 94, Dave was just the drummer. He kept time for Kurt's songs and sang some backup vocals. Since then, uh, I don't think we need to go through it. We'll just say that things have turned out okay. In the time he was with Nirvana, which was from the fall of 1990 to April 1994, he got to contribute just one song to the band. And to find it, you have to go deep into the CD single released for Heart Shaped Box in 1993 for a song called Marigold. At around this time, this is through 1993, Dave began to agitate for more input. He'd been writing his own songs for years and wanted to showcase some of his abilities with Nirvana. Kurt, who had already insisted that he get 75% of the songwriting royalties, balked. Besides, how's that old joke go? How do you know a drummer is about to be fired? It's when he says, hey, why don't we try one of my songs? Dave actually quit Nirvana for a brief time in 1993 because he overheard Kurt badmouthing him on a flight between gigs, something about not liking his playing style. And until the band actually took the stage for the taping of the MTV Unplugged broadcast, Kurt had been thinking of banning Dave from the gig because he didn't think he was up to it. But then Kurt died, and a little over a year later, the first Foo Fighters album was released. This would be July 1995. In the quarter century since the dissolution of Nirvana, there have been nine Foo Fighters studio albums, selling about 13 million copies in the U.S. alone, and about the same amount worldwide. Four won Grammy Awards. Dave has directed successful documentaries, and the Foos have played in front of tens of millions of people. So, basically, nice job by the guy that no one thought would do anything. The Foo Fighters from 1995. Actually, it would be more correct to say Dave Grohl from 1995 because there really wasn't a Foo Fighters back then. Dave did everything himself on that debut album. And since then, well, like I said, we, we know that story. Chris Novoselich, the guy everyone thought would be the person to carry on Nirvana's musical legacy, tried to keep things going with a couple of bands, but things just didn't work out. First, he was in a band called Sweet 75 through late 1995. The singer was a street musician from Venezuela who went by the name of Yiva Las Vegas. Their debut album, which was a self-titled thing, was issued in 1997 on DGC, Nirvana's label, and featured appearances by Peter Buck of R.E.M., members of Ministry, and the brass section of the band from The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. But because Sweet 75 was more experimental alt-pop than grunge, fans were... I guess disappointed, and the record just kind of disappeared. There were some gigs and a plan for a record in late 1999 and more plans in early 2001, but then it all fell apart. That was followed by a group called Eyes Adrift with a guy from the Meat Puppets, one of Nirvana's favorite bands, and the drummer from Sublime. However, nobody cared, and by 2003, that particular band was finished. There were rumblings of a Chris Novoselic solo album in 2005, but that was interrupted by a stint with an old-school punk band called Flipper. 
He was going to record an album with them, but in September 2008, Chris said he just had too many other responsibilities at home, including his involvement in regional politics. All tours were canceled, the album never got recorded, and here we are. Chris's big thing is electoral reform, and in 2004, he wrote a wafer-thin book called Of Grunge and Government. As for music, he still pops up to play the occasional one-off gig, often playing the accordion. For fun, let's go back and hear some Eyes Adrift. You'd have to be a really hardcore Nirvana fan to own anything by this band. This is called Alaska. Used to be What of the widow Cobain and daughter Frances Bean? At the time of Kurt's death, Kurt and Courtney had been married for just over four years. Four days before her band Hole was to release their second album, Live Through This, Kurt died. Live Through This actually ended up doing very well. The follow-up record, Celebrity Skin, also did well. Courtney got deep into acting, getting some really good reviews for her roles in The People vs. Larry Flint with Woody Harrelson and Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey. There was a solo album in 2004 called America's Sweetheart, but it didn't do very well. And then there was a 2010 album called Nobody's Daughter, but that also didn't do very well. Since then, Courtney has stepped back from music, playing the occasional, and I mean very occasional, gig. In fact, she told me directly, to my face, that she's done with music and would rather focus on fashion. After being portrayed as a grieving widow for a time, her image sunk to that of an out-of-control weirdo who was squandering all of Kurt's money. She went on and off the rails with varying degrees of craziness. There were drug issues, legal issues, financial issues, weight issues, and even more drug issues. And she did go through some very, very crazy times, all of which were painstakingly documented with regularity in the press. However, I can bear witness to the following. I have come to know Courtney personally over the years, and I'll tell you this. She's got things together. She's extraordinarily smart. And I've come to like her very, very much, so I wish her nothing but the best. Meanwhile, daughter Frances Bean, who was all of 18 months old when Dad died, and now looks very much like her father, is heir to a major fortune and has been dabbling in modeling and music on her own. She even worked as an intern at Rolling Stone magazine for a while. Then came a rough marriage and a divorce and a long period of estrangement from her mom, but that's all behind her now. Things in the Cobain household have settled down quite a bit. Courtney sold a piece of the Nirvana empire to a company called Primary Wave, which explains why we see more Kurt Cobain t-shirts and action figures and lunchboxes and shoes. Primary Wave also looks after the future licensing of Nirvana songs. There have been other deals. Courtney authorized the publication of Kurt's private diaries. Courtney led biographer Charles R. Cross go through Kurt's stuff and write a book called Cobain Unseen. And then there was that excellent documentary called Montage of Heck. Courtney was involved in that one, too. And yes, there have been attempts at a memoir or biography, but those have yet to be completed. Let's go back to September 1998, the first single from the Celebrity Skin album. This is Hole. After Kurt died, there were a lot of questions about any music that he might have left behind. 
There were some recorded rehearsals with Nirvana in early 1994, but there were precious few that were complete with vocals. One unreleased song, a live untitled recording from Chicago back in 1993, circulated on the internet for almost a decade before a studio version recorded on January 30th, 1994, became legally available. Courtney took the song for Hole under the title You've Got No Right. This can be seen and heard in an MTV Unplugged performance on February 14, 1995. But then the Nirvana recording got bogged down in a lawsuit that took forever to sort out. So why did it take so long? Well, Courtney wanted the song to be released as part of a single disc greatest hits compilation, while Dave and Chris wanted it to be part of a box set. In the end, it was released both ways. Kurt never gave the song a title while he was alive. It was listed in the studio notes as Kurt's song number one. But by the time of its official release, it was agreed that the song should be called You Know You're Right. You Know You're Right, the last full proper song recorded by Nirvana. Finally, let's engage in a little alternate history. What if Kurt hadn't died? What if he had gotten clean and sober and healthy? What might have happened then? Well, my guess would be that he would have separated himself from Nirvana for his next project using different musicians. Maybe people like, um, I don't know, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins and most likely Michael Stipe of R.E.M., they had been talking about working together. This would have most likely been a solo record and would have probably had a much more acoustic feel to it. In fact, a lot of these plans were already in place. He'd been talking about quiet songs with string arrangements, and he even had a plane ticket to see Michael Stipe to talk about this project, but he canceled at the last minute. Here, for example, is a home recording of a Beatles song uncovered before he died. Could this have hinted towards Kurt's future musical ambitions? Stars the shine, dark is the sky, and never mind will Had Kurt lived, he would have probably pursued his non grunge musical ideas maybe doing the kind of unplugged shows that we saw later from Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell. Maybe he would like that new direction. Maybe he would like that new life. And maybe he would just sort of dissolve Nirvana. Not a breakup, but just an undramatic fade to black. Again, more speculation. At some point over the next five years, he and Courtney would have been divorced. Her life probably would have turned out much the same as it has. Dave Grohl, finally freed from being just Kurt's timekeeper, would have gone about his merry way with the Foo Fighters. I can't see that being much different, except for an inevitable Nirvana reunion at Coachella at about, uh, oh, 2005 or something. That might have resulted in a brief big money tour, but by the end, everybody, especially Kurt, realized that they were headed down the same dark road as before, so the band breaks up again for good. Again, total speculation. Chris Novoselic? Well, he was always the activist of the band, the political guy. So as Dave went off with the Foo Fighters and Kurt became this acoustic guy, I could still see Chris following his political interests. Maybe he would have stuck with Kurt and helped him out. I don't know. We'll never know. 
I just counted out the number of books I have on Kurt Cobain and Nirvana in my office library and stopped at 20. Few artists have that kind of writing dedicated to them. Kurt's music and his life and death continue to fascinate even a quarter of a century after he died. Is there more left to learn? Maybe just Courtney's memoirs, maybe a couple of books by those who were closest to him. And we know that there's no music left hiding anywhere. That well is completely bone dry. And it's all fine to speculate on what might have been, but the reality is that Kurt did die and has become one of those icons that we see once in a generation or so. His influence extends not just through rock, but pop and even into hip hop. And it wasn't just his music, but his attitude, his image. It's so powerful that we'll probably be talking about him and Nirvana when we reach the 50th anniversary of his death. So if you were around on April 8th, 1994, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you weren't around on April 8th, 1994, maybe this all helps explain why we're still talking about him, why there's such reverence for Kurt and for Nirvana. It was a really, really big deal to an entire generation of music fans when we learned that he had died that day. This program is available as a podcast through all the podcast platforms. They are 100% free to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. We can also connect through my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. There's also the free newsletter, which is sent out every day so you don't miss anything. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So, uh, you know, give me a follow if you get a chance. That would be nice. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.